The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. And it's excellent to be given the privilege to give the three refuges and the five precepts. It's something which is universal. You go around the world. And so many places, you know, you hear Buddhang, Saranang, Charmi. And to me, it's just really, it's, honestly, I'm not exaggerating. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. I remember reading in one book, even in uh, southern Egypt, in a port city built by Philadelphus Ptolemy, you know, around so 2,000 years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. But uh, there, there's gravestones of some of the Indians who helped build that port city. It was a trade route between India uh, over to Egypt, Alexandria, and there to Europe. And in that city, there's still a gravestone with Buddhang Saranangachami, Damang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami inscribed on it. It's one thing which is almost essential Buddhism, no matter what tradition you are from. So going for the three refuges, Buddhang Saranangachami, Damang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami, is something which is recognized throughout the world as like a core um, affirmation of your commitment to this Buddhist path. You don't need to be a perfect Buddhist to take the, the three refuges. It's where you're going to, it's the road, it's the path. And then afterwards, we take those precepts. And I've been telling a lot of people recently that uh, I've been keeping these precepts, of, you know, four monks' precepts for so many years now. And it's not a burden at all anymore. And sometimes <laughs> they're just natural. You know, just um, these are just my life, the way I live. And you never want to harm anybody or, or harm yourself. So why break any precept? It doesn't make any sense to me. And so even if you you first of all think, oh, these five precepts are really difficult. They're not. They're just common sense. Now, who would want you know, to kill anybody or you know, kill a living being? Living beings need their life as well. They respect uh, their existence. And it's not that hard these days to live a life where one's harm of others is very limited. We don't want to take other people's possessions. And what a beautiful place it is, like in Bodhinyana Monastery, where the doors are open. And you now we trust people that no one will steal things. What a beautiful world that is, when you can live in a place where you don't fear that things will be taken from you. And you know, no sexual misconduct. You know, you're lay people, I'm amongst so there's no sexuality at all there. But you, know, you don't want to harm anybody. The sexuality should be an act of love, and love is an act of care and respect to one another's boundaries and just you know, enjoying each other's company. And so that should be just another easy precept to keep. And lying, that's one of the biggest of those precepts, and we want to make sure that we can trust one another. So what people say, we can take, no, that's the truth. What a beautiful world that will be if we can trust the people we live with. We ask them a question, if they've done something wrong, they're courageous enough to actually be truthful. 
And the person they're telling it to is wise enough. They never scold them. You can scold somebody if they lie, but if they tell the truth and it's upsetting you, please thank them for being honest. Honesty is more important than most other things. And lastly, not taking alcohol or drugs. A great scourge on our nation, a scourge on our world. We take that alcohol in all sorts of mischievous things, which we regret for the rest of our life. We're taking non-medicinal drugs. I've seen that create so much harm. Really good people, wonderful people take some drugs and the drugs take them. We never really see the old person we once knew ever again. There's one story which comes to mind before I actually get into the precepts. Please excuse me for taking a bit of time. There's one of my friends, which I grew up with, went to school with, a brilliant young man. He also went up to Cambridge to study medicine. But unfortunately, while he was at Cambridge, he got into drug addiction, big time. And so eventually, he never finished his degree. And eventually, I don't know what sort of prisons he went to, whatever. I saw him after many years, this brilliant young man who could have been a great physician, either in research or surgery or something. And then he ended up, he was, I saw him and he was uh, getting by, by mowing people's gardens in England. And to me, that really hurts. See a wonderful young man, full of promise, full of uh, skills, smart young man, and eventually just mowing lawns, like a, a very, very, very poor tradesman. So you see those examples in your own life, and please keep away from the alcohol and drugs, keep those five precepts, and they'll keep you. So anyway, we're going to start now by, uh, I'll do the Namotasa. You can join in with me with Namotasa, but then I'll do the Buddhang Savanangachami after the Namotasa. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa now I'll give the three refuges. I'll say one line and I'll pause a little bit to give the opportunity to repeat it after me. Buddhang Savanangachami Dhammang Savanangachami Sangang Savanangachami Dutiampi Buddhang Savanangachami Dutiampi Dhammang Savanangachami Dutiampi Sanghang Savanangachami Tatiampi Buddhang Savanangachami Tatiampi Buddhang 
tatiampi dhammang savanangachami tatiampi sankhang savanangachami That completes the three refuges. I will now give the five Buddhist precepts. Panati pata viramanisi kapadang samadhyami. Adinadana. Viramanisi Kapadang Samadhyami Kamesu Michachara Viramanisi Kapadang Samadhyami Musawada Viramanisi Kapadang Samadhyami Sura Nirayamajapamadatana Viramanisi Kapadang Samadhyami Imani Panchasi Kapadani Silena Sukating Yanti Silena Boga Sampada Silena Nibuting Yanti Tasma Silang Visodaye. Excellent. That last little chant was like a little blessing we give after the precepts that anyone who keeps these precepts, though it leads to happiness, to sukha. You feel good about yourself. You feel like inside there's a sense of purity. And that purity attracts happiness. People trust you. And you have many more friends when you keep precepts. Honestly, who would you like to go out with? Who would like to stay with? Who would you like to be your friends? People who keep precepts or people who don't keep precepts? And it also leads to, believe it or not, wealth. It's really strange. When you keep precepts, is that a way of making money? Of course it is. I remember this uh, gentleman... He was uh, an advisor to the Bank of England. He was a, a professor of economics at one of the universities in England. And uh, he gave this, <laughs> this conference once I was also involved in. And he said that you know, when you're dealing with people who are honest, the thing in economics, which is called transaction costs, which is an extra bit of money which you put into your budget to understand that what your supplier says they're going to deliver at what particular time, you can't always trust that. They're sometimes late, and what they deliver is what, not what you ask for. And what you supply to your clients, sometimes they don't trust it's coming at the right time. So that lack of trust has got an economic downside to it. And if we have like confidence, trust, it's so much easier to do business. And I see that even in building this monastery for over... Oh, how many years now? 38 years, I think, I've been at Bodhinyana Monastery, building it from scratch. And so many of the builders who come here, <laughs> we don't pay them on time. They know this must be the, the invoice hasn't come yet. They trust us implicitly. And I still remember <laughs> so many lovely stories. <laughs> For example, just when I was the main building monk, 
going to the hardware store and getting a lot of wood, I mean, as much as we could put into our old combi van, the old VW. And then just when I got it back to the monastery, I checked everything and found out there was a quite a bit of wood there, maybe about $100 worth, which they hadn't put on the invoice, on the bill. So we'd taken away without paying for it. Unintentional, of course. So the next day, I just was still in the car. And then I just uh, took the car back to the, the hardware stop, shop and said, look, terribly sorry that you didn't put this on the bill. You can have it back if you want, or we can pay for it. You know, what's your choice? But we, you know, we, we can't take things we haven't paid for. And I remember the look on this, this uh, attendant's face, you know, the guy who was working in this shop, he looked at me just without moving his eyes or his mouth for about one and a half minutes. He said, just wait here a moment. And then he brought the manager down. And the manager said, okay, we'll give you a 5% discount from now on, the builder's discount, and because of our honesty. So we paid for the wood and took it away again. And for that time on, everything we bought from that hardware store, he always got 5% discount, simply because we were honest. People trusted us. And so we actually saved much more than 100 bucks over the years, all the building we did here. It's a nice little story, just how honesty, it does make life so much easier. And precepts, once you keep them, and you get known as honest, keeping precept people, then it makes life just so beautiful for you, so easy. You feel good about yourself, and you're, maybe everyone else in the world might be breaking those precepts, but you're not. And that means that you'll be a very good person, great human being. And when people doubt, they doubt politicians, they doubt police, they doubt sort of uh, uh, teachers at schools. So many people we doubt these days. But when, you know, if you're going to be a Buddhist, Theravada Buddhist, please keep those precepts. Five is not that much to keep. You know, not that hard to keep. If you just like your wine, you get non-alcoholic wine these days. It's easy, and you can just drink that if you really want to, and you're going out at night or something. You don't need to lie. See if you can. There was that one story during the Second World War in Amsterdam. There was a philosopher, I forget what his name was, but he made a vow of honesty. He was going to be honest no matter what. But at the same time, he was a good man, and he was sheltering a family of Jewish people in his house during the Second World War. Because if they were found, they'd be sent to Auschwitz or Belsen or something and, and killed just for their religious beliefs. And when they came to his house, the Gestapo, and they knocked on his door, this is a secret police, or whatever, military police, I don't know what you would call them, but they were pretty tough, this Gestapo. Anyway, they knocked at his door and asked him, have you got any Jewish people staying in your house? And he had this ethical dilemma. Should he tell the truth, which means that those Jewish people will be sent to be exterminated, executed, and most likely so would he and his family. It wasn't an easy decision to make. If he lied, they'd all be safe. What should he do? And the wonderful thing about people who are honest, they're also wise. So apparently what he did, he told the 
as head of the police. He said, come and have a look for yourself. Okay, no worries, sir. Thank you very much. And they left without even looking inside. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, the honesty that some forces of goodness or maybe David's, I don't know, they protect you and help you. Which is why that, you know, when you are honest and known to be honest and practice honesty, you're practicing truthfulness. When you practice truthfulness, of course, truthfulness protects you as well. Little by little, you find that these precepts are not hard to keep, but they're beautiful, they're adornments for you. And when you start keeping these precepts, oh my goodness, that itself gives you some happiness and joy. Well, I remember one, <laughs> one retreat which I was teaching. Oh, and by the way, India, anyone else who's listening here, if I talk too much, I'm not quite sure when I'm supposed to finish today. <laughs> but anyway, I know it's supposed to go on to 8.30 eventually, but I think there's supposed to be other things rather than listening to me rabbit on. Uh, I mean, <laughs> please excuse me, but I, I know the story I'm going to tell next, and it's a funny one because even a couple of days ago, I was telling people that when you start to get old, and I'm, this is my 70th year, soon I have my 70th birthday. And when you get old, you know, your, your eyes you know, need a, you know, glasses and your hearing is sometimes not as good as it used to be. And sometimes people's arms shake and their legs are weak. Many parts of their body are not as fit as they used to be. But I always mention there's one part of your body which gets stronger with age. This, the mouth. <laughs> old people can really talk. So I can go on for a long time. So you quite please remind me when I'm supposed to stop. <laughs> Anyhow. Yes, there's no other program, Bante. You can go on until 10.30. Until 10.30? Can I go on to, I think, this afternoon till uh, 2 p.m.? 4 p.m.? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that to you. Okay, till 10.30, okay. That's 8.30 over here. Excellent. So, so keeping even precepts, especially on Waysack Day, inspire yourself. Remember what this day means. The day when the Lord Buddha sat under that Bodhi tree and became fully enlightened. The longer I'm a monk, the deeper my meditation and insight goes, the more you really, really, really appreciate you know, that event so many years ago, full enlightenment, breaking through to see you know, what's really true. But many people say that. Many people say they know the truth, they're enlightened, or their religion is the right one, and other religions are not the right one, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, how do you know that you know, this path is good and pure? And of course, the only way is to, to practice it. And you can feel the peace, the happiness, the joy coming up. And this is not a joy which is an addictive joy. It's a joy which is based on freedom. It's a happiness which is, which is so deep and profound. It happens at all sorts of weird times sometimes. Sometimes you're meditating and just the mind just explodes in happiness and joy, in ecstasy. And it's because the mind is very pure and peaceful and it's clear afterwards. And such a mind, the reason why 
you can trust that these are real things because it doesn't demand anything, it doesn't want anything. It's peaceful and still and just gives, gives and offers to share whatever energy, happiness, wisdom you have for others. Whether they want it or don't want it, it's up to them. But you are so peaceful and happy no matter what happens. And that type of, of happiness and joy, which is you know, associated, it's right next door to, in fact, it's part of giving, part of what we call chaga, this wonderful liberality. Liberality means doesn't just mean the Liberal Party, it, it means the, the giving, and it's also the freedom. It's releasing people from bonds, releasing you know, what you think you own so that others can share it. And that's a beautiful part of this Buddhist teachings, liberality, freedom. It never tells people what to believe. It just shows people the way. Have a look over there. There you'll find something really beautiful and wonderful. And it frees this mind and body from all these problems of the past. And I mentioned in the talk I gave yesterday, just this is not, well, it's actually basically for enlightenment, but on the way, there's so many beautiful side effects. You know, side effects like good health in your body. And that's something which you know, I was really quite surprised at. How when you're a good person, you keep your precepts, that's how your body is very easy to heal. In other words, if you do get sickness, sometimes the sickness doesn't go so deep, it's not so sharp, the pain is not so hard on you. But more than that, when you even have confidence in the Buddha, this is Waisak Day. It's one of the chants which we do, it's just reflecting on some of the aspects of Buddhism and that should give you so much joy and happiness. So joy and happiness overcome sickness. There's one old story years ago, and I was a Buddhist, but not you know, a, a strict Buddhist in that day. I was still a lay person doing a teaching course. And this was in the town of Durham in the north of England. And I was one morning, I was really so sick with a cold. You know, just this you know, synovial fluid, whatever you call it. In those days, we called it snot, S-N-O-T. <laughs> It was just pouring out of my nose. Eyes were just watery, coughing, and I felt no energy at all. So all my fellow students had gone off to their lectures at the university, and I was lying in bed on my back, feeling just next to death, feeling terrible. And then I heard this, this uh, doorbell of our little student house ringing. Of course, everyone else was out of their lectures. I was the only one in the house because I was sick. And they kept on ringing and I said, go away. But they kept on ringing. So I crawled out of bed, stood in my pajamas and called to the door. Actually, it wasn't crawling, but staggering to the door, opened the door and it was a delivery man. They had a, 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 some parcels for this uh, student called Peter Betts. That was my lay name before I became Ajahn Brahm. So that's me. What is it? And I remembered, you know, when you got really sick, you don't you know, remember that much. You're just really tired and you're consumed by your sickness. And it was my little stereo system. 
for those of you of my age, you know, almost 70, to actually get any music, you had to get loudspeakers, an amplifier and a deck and put your vinyl CDs, or vinyl um, LPs on it. And that's what it was. I ended up and now it finally arrived. And of course I was uh, overjoyed. I got something to listen to when I was in bed worrying about my sickness. So I had to hoard it all upstairs and just unpack it, just connect it all together and put on my first LP. I hadn't heard this for, for months. And please excuse me, it happened to be Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> it wasn't a dumber talk, <laughs> far from it. But when I put that LP on, I noticed something strange had happened. When I started listening to that music, the cold had totally vanished, didn't come back. No more snot coming out of my nose. The eyes went watery. I felt energy. And that really was a lesson to me. How joy, how happiness, the inner happiness, it, just, it was a worldly happiness, but even that was powerful enough to get rid of a cold. It has somehow just boosted my immune system so much it had uh, banished the cold. I always remember stories like that because that's when the Buddha uh, did chanting for monks who were sick. It's in the Bhajanga uh, chant, which we often do. And it was so inspirational. If you understand its meaning, it's so inspirational that the person listening to these beautiful teachings of the Buddha gets so inspired, so overjoyed, just viruses and bacteria just can't stand it. They disappear. The power of joy and bliss inside of you is great. And of course, I, I don't mind admitting I use that a lot to keep healthy. If I'm sort of very sick physically, you know, because of overwork or tiredness, or you've got some sort of flu or something or other, that's one of the things which I use to make sure that I don't get sick. Even so, that I did take my first flu sh um, COVID shot. It was over a month ago now. No reaction, of course, because I'm a pretty healthy monk. It's been such a long time. I, mean, <laughs> I remember going to the doctor's surgery, the first time I've been there for, for years to get a COVID shot. And I had to fill out all these forms about what diseases I'd had. Had this, no, that, no, this, no, 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 no. When I filled out all those forms, I realized how healthy I was for a 70-year-old monk. And you do this because of you know, things like the joy from the precepts, the joy from living a good life, the joy from all the goodness you've done. And please, at the beginning of this talk, Enderia, the, the president of the Buddhist Society of Victoria, what a very fortunate job you've had. It will just tire you out enormously. But what a beautiful thing it is, because you remember this for the rest of your life. <laughs> Implorable. You're giving something to something much bigger than you, much better than you, building up this retreat center. And all the people who become enlightened or stream winners or get jhanas or get deep meditation in that retreat center, now, Indira, you will have a huge amount of that good karma for yourself, as well as all the other people who help out.
I usually tell this story uh, on the entry to the rain stay, start of, of WAS. And there was a time when Wisaka, Wisaka, who was the, the chief lay attendant, our chief female supporter of the Buddha, what a wise woman she was. Because she came up to the, she invited the Buddha to her house for a dana. And of course, it was a wet season. And so and while they were still cooking, there was a, a big storm, a rainstorm. And I can imagine in those days that monastics, you know, they couldn't bathe in the rivers because the rivers, the currents were flowing too fast. So what they would often do would actually you know, bathe in the rain. It's like a free shower happening. And that's what happened, this big heavy storm. I must admit, I've done that in Thailand before, bathed in the rain, but in most cases was under the, under the down pipe, pipes. We're catching the rainwater. It was a really beautiful shower. Lots of water, very fast, and quite invigorating. But anyway, it was a big rainstorm, and the Buddha, in, uh, the Buddha said, yeah, let's just have a bath before we go to the, uh, the meal invitation, the dana. So all the monks stripped off, naked and started bathing in the rain. And that's when Wisaka's uh, attendant came to the monastery and saw all the monks, actually well, didn't see any monks, she just saw a lot of naked men. And she thought, this can't be a Buddhist monastery. <laughs> and she turned around and went back to her mistress, Wisaka, saying, there's no monks there, there's just some naked perverts or something. And then Isaka was very wise to go back again. By that time, the rain had stopped, and of course, the monks had all got dressed and looked like monks now, and invited the whole Sangha to come to her house for the meal. And after the meal was finished, that's when Isaka went up to the Lord Buddha and said, You know, this is what happened. My maid first went to the monastery, and you were all bathing naked. Now, you know, you're monks without any attachments. You don't really care about what other people think of you. But for many people, they lose a lot of faith if they saw, you know, monastics going around naked. They get the wrong idea. So can I please offer the whole Sangha, every one of you, cloths for bathing during the rainy season? So you can put this little cloth around you, yourself and then bathe under the rain as much as you like without being naked. And the Buddha heard that and thought, wow, that's a very good idea. So he allowed rainy season bathing cross, Vasikasatika. And, but she then said, can I be the only one in Sawati who offers these things? Just me, no one else. And the Buddha thought for a while, he said, why? Why just you? But before she answered, she said, but also for the, the bhikkhunis as well, to give them some bathing cloths. And also to give cloths, special cloths in case of sickness. And when monks or nuns are sick, can they please come and see me and I can get them special foods and special medicines. Not just for those who are sick, for those looking after the sick, because they don't have time to go on arms round. And also when they first come to Sarvati, can I be the first one to give them some food? So the first day, they can always come to my food when they don't know where else to go. And then also, before they leave Sawati, can I be the one who gives them 
the last meal before they go traveling this place and that place. So I can also ask them if there's anything else they need, right? Maybe some shoes or something. Can I do that and no one else? When the Buddha heard, no one else, that's a bit sort of, a bit much. Why? This is another thing about the Buddha, about any wise person, when they're asked a favor, you don't say no, you don't say yes, you say why? And what Visaka said after that was, if I am the one who gives every monk or nun when they first came, the first meal here, give them their final meal before they go traveling, look after them when they're sick, give them rainy season bathing cloths and all these other gifts, and I will know, she said, when anybody in this retreat gets a jhana, gets a state of deep insight, becomes a soul one, becomes enlightened, I will know I'd fed them. I give them food, I give them cloths for their, their bathing, give them medicines when they were sick. I will know that I, I serve these. And that will give me so much happiness. So much joy when I remember this. But that will be the cause of my own deep meditation and my enlightenment. So said Visaka. And the Buddha was so impressed. He said, yes, I give you that privilege, just you, for your whole life, till you pass away, then other people can also join in. The weird thing, the Buddha just singled out one woman to give her the opportunity to make this huge merit. Why? Because of her explanation and understanding of the Dhamma. All of you who are committee members of the BSV, it's really hard work, very difficult. But what are you doing it for? You're doing it to create more enlightened beings in Victoria, in Australia, in the world. You're doing it to give people the opportunity to become monks and nuns, to serve, to practice, to penetrate the Dhamma, to see the truth of things. And to get the sort of joy which, you know, you just, you cannot measure the beautiful thing you're doing. So, Indira, Adrian, Rohan, Wiwara, no, 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 that's hard to treasure. Uh, Waraka, and all the people in the committee of the BSV, I'd usually meet you this time of the year, every way, so I can't meet you this year, not personally. But, you know, sadhu, 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 for your giving, giving your time, giving your energy, and especially for an incredible project like the retreat center. One of the best things which I ever did was building our retreat center here in Perth, Jhana Grove. <laughs> Quite frankly, oh, I would have driven a normal human being crazy a few times. I recall once building that thing and just it was always going over budget. And I remember very clearly being given a talk in Sydney. And I noticed an email came through the bill for $600,000. We only had about 50000 in the bank. <laughs> I jumped, Rob's going to go to jail. <laughs> Of course, I never went to jail. But what happened was, you know, I just I knew the builders. They were disciples and friends. So in the end, we just said, can you just wait for a month or two? Okay. 
And by that time, we've got a bit of fun from here, a bit of fun from there. But it's always exciting. But I knew it would always come through. A good project, something which is beneficial for all beings, of course, you'll be successful. There's beings in this world which you don't see, which want these things to work, want it to happen. If you were building a casino at Newbury, no way would it work. But building a retreat center where men and women from all races, religions, castes, creeds, fitnesses, the disabled, whatever, and all these beings can come and meditate in a very peaceful, beautiful way. A way which doesn't push them, which is kind to them, which is which is allows them to soak their body and mind, which has been hurt and injured so many times. I imagine allowing them to soak in the beautiful Buddhist compassion for days. Peaceful, at ease, nothing asked of you, nothing so demanded of you. And quite frankly, I'm not sure what the BSV has decided, but we don't usually do it by donations. By, so don't usually do it by fees or by donations. However much you can afford, you just give. It could be millions, it could be five cents. I don't care. It just comes from your heart rather than from, you know, just trying to work out how much it costs. And those sorts of inspirations, I've lived by that all my life. 47 years now as a monk, and it's always worked. If you look for the best, you find the best. If you're doubtful, negative, you find the negative. So anyway, it's great being able to do something like this. And so the amount of merit every one of you is making is huge. Magnificent, the sort of thing you remember when you pass away. That's the other thing which I often do as a monk, just give blessings for people who are dying or dead. Sometimes those funeral services, and to me, they're not um, depressing. They're inspiring. It just, you're summing up one lifetime and how these people which you've known for a long time, how you get even closer to them when they're dead because you hear all their stories. It's like instead of seeing the day where you meet them, you see the whole life where you've known them. And little by little, it starts to inspire all the kind, beautiful, good things they've done. And sometimes people do get depressed. I know this is a bit radical to say this, but if you went to more funeral services, especially Buddhist funeral services, where we do always have focused on the good part of their life, their kindness, their good deeds, it inspires you. Human beings, how wonderful they could be. In great difficulty, they can still rise to the, such a beautiful state. <laughs> what comes to mind now? Because oh, just a few days ago at our wayside in Perth, one of the visitors was the, the new Vice-Chancellor of the University of Western Australia. He was a Buddhist. A Buddhist from Bangladesh. It's wonderful to see that because you get some inspiration because where he came from was so difficult. He's a, a Chakma, which is usually the, the hill tribes in Bangladesh. And in those days, when I first became a monk, they were very badly oppressed. 
losing so much of their land and possessions. And this gentleman, I don't know how he did it, must have been really skillful at school and eventually university. And apparently he was a vice chancellor in a university in Canada somewhere. It was wonderful to see someone who had such little assistance from his family or connections just grow and rise to such a wonderful state. Our University of Western Australia Vice-Chancellor. And it also reminded me that only recently there was a new uh, governor of South Australia. The previous governor was also a Buddhist, a Vietnamese Buddhist. And his story is, I've probably told you this so many times, but I love telling this story because he was a boat person with his family and whatever possessions he took, but they're probably robbed on the journey on the way. Got in a boat and fled Vietnam, his homeland, and all he knew were strange shores. I don't know if you can sort of imagine what that would be like, the desperation of being in a boat, hardly any food, no water, not knowing whether you're going to be accepted where you where you landed. But he was very fortunate. He came to Western Australia. That's where the boat eventually meandered to, drifted to. And he said the first two human beings he saw when he arrived, he was still on the boat, were two Aussie fishermen. And those two Aussie fishermen greeted him with a wonderful Australian welcome. Good day, mate. Welcome to Australia. Have a beer. <laughs> Maybe it's not how I would welcome people. Have a beer. <laughs> but he always remembered that. The first people he saw welcomed him. And eventually he became the governor of South Australia. I don't know how he got there from literally nothing to this huge amount of respect. So much so, they said, yeah, we want you to be our governor for the next, I think, I don't know how many years. He had two terms, I think he did. So it's these stories of excellence because, you know, we're kind, we're good, we work hard, and then our karma means that it's amazing what we can make. So little by little, we get inspired. I get inspired by these stories. And as you get inspired by these stories, what's this effect? It makes you try even harder to serve, to give to our community. So honestly, sometimes I'm in awe, and I say that seriously, in awe of the Buddhists who serve on our committee, the Buddhists who are just working in the background, the Buddhists who work so hard to try and get all these marquees and chairs and BA systems and stuff ready for the way sack. It worked. You had the opportunity to do good stuff. And if you're listening to this, you should get goosebumps up and down your spine or shivers, shivers of goodness. It's called Chaganusati, remembering, recalling the goodness which you've done, which you've given. It's not small, it's huge. Never underplay the power of great acts. And it's not the fact that, you know, it didn't, I couldn't go and Venerable Medito couldn't arrive there. 
We don't have this big ceremony in Newbury or in Box Hill or wherever. Nevertheless, you had the chance to do goodness and you took that chance and you did it. That's awesome. So little by little, you allow yourself to be inspired. And when you're inspired by goodness, now you find that you get incredible energies. And those energies, that heals you physically. Anyone who's depressed, feels down, get out there and help clean up after the events. Take the marquee down, put it up again, whatever it is you can do. But that service, when it's done from your heart, creates huge amounts of joy. And that's the joy which is pure. You allow it to go into your body and just, wow, sickness doesn't have much of a chance. But it's not just for physical health. It's also for emotional health and power too. When I imagine just all the good things which are being done in this world, maybe it's because that's the sort of world I live in and I see it a lot. See the kindness, see the joy, see the service, see the generosity of people. It blows me away. You know, when the monks first came out to the West from Ajahn Chah's monastery, one of the master Ajahn Chah, when we arrive in the West, what happens if no one feeds us? That happened to me a couple of times. <laughs> There's food in the refrigerator, but no one to offer it. So he went without for the day. Quite a few times I haven't eaten in a day, not because I didn't want to, because there's no one there to give me any food. That was in the early days. But nevertheless, there's still always beautiful, kind people. They've fed me for the last 38 years. And if anybody wants to see me, have a look at my photograph. You see that I've got a pretty fat belly. And that's built on the kindness of so many Australian people over the years. That's what it shows their compassion and kindness, giving me so much food to eat. It's not the food which I'm eating, it's their kindness, their compassion, their joy. And I do that for that reason. What would happen if I just refused it? That's not kind. That means there's something deeply missing there. So you receive it. Oh, I'm fine, I'm healthy enough. But what it does mean is that people have this wonderful joy. They've helped the monks and the nuns survive another day. And it also means that they have this beautiful good karma they've made. So it's great you have monks and nuns in Buddhist society of Victoria, lots of them. And they're going to be growing in the future. You have a few monks and nuns. And then you find that they grow and grow and grow. And yesterday, in our little hall in Bodhinyana Monastery, there were 24 monks for lunch. It was all residents, all not our mob, as they say in Australia. And I looked at them and said, how did this happen? Starting with just two monks, and now just monks packed together so tightly. It was beautiful to see just how this Buddhism is just so powerful and so popular even. So in a place like NPM, Newby Buddhist Monastery, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. That place is going to grow and grow and grow and grow. 
And imagine you'll be able to go to those places, listen to the Dhamma, just be inspired by really good women, intelligent women, very highly um, educated women, great monks from all different lands of the world. It's coming together to practice, to teach, and to keep this wonderful Dhamma of the Buddha going. I don't know how many more centuries, but now in Australia. Wow, and you're part of that. And who knows that many of you supporting now may take the opportunity to put on the, the brown robes and bald head. Maybe if it's not you, maybe your children or your nephews and nieces or whatever. What a wonderful opportunity that is giving to our future generations. You know, for someone like myself, it was hard to find a good monastery. You had to leave your land of your birth to find those good monasteries. But now, those good monasteries are sort of growing all over the place. And now even in Melbourne. Beautiful place. Good energy. The place which can be there for hundreds of years. See all these old monasteries. Sometimes people have old castles, old ruins which people go and see. But this is like a spiritual place. Place of spiritual peace and harmony. And once that gets set up, that's that spreads the Dhamma, spreads Buddhism very powerfully. Sometimes we had books, sometimes we had talks, sometimes we have uh, lectures at university. But the most powerful way of spreading Buddhism is practicing it, just in showing how well it works, showing just how inspiring it is when you, you have somebody. <laughs> I was thinking of uh, uh, actually a couple of nuns, believe it or not, a couple of nuns which I ordained. Didn't really ordain them because other people did the main ordination, the monks just did the second part. And just seeing how great teachers they've become over the years. See how they grow in their confidence, in their wisdom, in their kindness, in their, their understanding. You know, sometimes, the, I know India call me like the father, uh, these other monks also help and established the forest tradition here in Australia, but I've been here a while now. And it is like sometimes being a parent. All of those of you who've had children, and you see your children growing and growing and growing, and then they, they do well at school, they do well at university, and they, they start their own families and they do well. You know how much joy and happiness it gives you? I never got married. I never sort of had a family that way. But these days I have a family this other way. All the people you serve and teach and sacrifice for and, and give to and guide. And all of those monks and nuns who are taught, you feel incredibly proud of them, inspired by them, almost grateful to them. You've done very well. There's many things which you say which I don't agree with. <laughs> but that means small things. And never expect you to be a clone of Ajahn Brahm. Never you would be a clone of your mother or your father. But you inspire them. And you realize that the teachings of the Buddha are just going to keep growing and growing and growing. 
year after year, more facilities, more inspiration, just more people getting peaceful. I know that sometimes people, some people complain, oh, this is too much work for the committee, too much work at, at Newbury Buddhist Monastery, too much work at Bodhidharma Monastery or whatever. No, it's never too much. When we have this opportunity, we don't look upon it as something which burdens us. We look upon something where we can give to. I give my time, give my energy, give my life. A good example of that is this time when I went to Singapore, one of the first times I went to Singapore, and somebody took me around all the different temples in Singapore. And the one which I remember, I remember many of them, but this particular story occurred at the Sri Lankan temple. And when they told me it's quite a large temple, and having taken me around, the, the chief monk there, having taken me around the Sri Lankan temple in uh, one of the Sri Lankan temples in Singapore, then asked me to sign a visitor's book. And of course, the visitor's book is something you know, you're supposed to sign. So <laughs> I picked it up. I don't know if you could criticize me, I should have been more mindful. But I'm happy this occurred, because it gave me an opportunity. I picked up the book and I wrote in my name, Ajahn Brahm, the address. And then I think usually the next uh, space was for your comments about the place. But the next space didn't have a space for comments. It had a space for the amount you're going to donate. <laughs> I picked up the donation book instead of the guest, the visitor's book. It was too late now because I'd already put my name and address in. Ah, what can I donate? Because in the monks of our tradition, we don't have personal funds. I don't have any money. I, I sometimes enjoy that. When people say, can you give a donation? I've nothing to give, no money. But here I'd already put down my name and address. And so when you get put in a spot like that, you always, amazingly, you can always think outside the box to say, write down something different. So what I wrote down there in the, my donation to the Sri Lankan Buddhist temple in Singapore, what am I going to donate? I just wrote two words, M-Y-L-I-F-E, my life. So I donated my life to the cause, to Buddhism. That was really, that's a really good donation to make. You get a lot of merit out of that, you know, donating your life to a cause. And so I know lots of people have done that to new people this monastery. They may not have written in a book. They've given something really huge to something which is worthwhile and going to help so many people in our world, so many people in Newbury, so many people in Melbourne, so many people in Victoria. A huge resource for people. Sometimes you wonder why. Why is it that you know that you can be of such great service? Something about monastic, the renunciation, they've given up so much they don't want anything back in return. They're just giving. The beautiful thing that is, it goes totally against the materialistic way of the world. Of, you know, you're doing things to get something. It's one of the reasons why I don't know if it's the right time to say this, but I don't really care when 
the new pre-Buddhist monastery retreat center would be completed. The completion is not important to me. It's the building of it is important to me. The fact it's being done when it finished, well, we'll see what happens. It's a process. Make sure the process is done beautifully, inspiring me. Then the thing will just happen by itself. That's what I've found in my life. So little by little, we're doing inspiring things. And of course, when you do inspiring things, you remember inspiring things like the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. This was where the Buddha became the Buddha. Simple, peaceful, not studying, not fighting, not conquering other people, not even conquering his mind, but just being at peace not fighting, being still, being kind. Compassion is what conquers. If you want to call, use the word conquer, that kindness, that wisdom, that letting things be, that created this beautiful journey inside. Inside where he was, inside his body, inside his mind, inside of that, inside of that. Always going in to the source of things. And they're just finding the beautiful nothingness, emptiness. People think, oh, come on, Ajahn Brahm, nothingness, emptiness, what's inspiring about that? I ask you the next time that it's a beautiful day, beautiful evening, you go to some mountain top or cliff, you look over the ocean or look over space. And just see as far as you wish, with nothing between you and infinity. That was one of those stories which I put in one of my first books about those pyramids in the Yucatan Peninsula, in a place called Tikal in Guatemala. And going there in 1972 or three. Oh no, sorry, 1969. Going there in 1969 and just climbing one of those pyramids to the top. No one stopped. There was only about one other human being around there, some archaeologist. It was just so free. I'm going right at the top of one of those pyramids, not knowing what the spiritual meaning was. And as soon as you got to the top of the pyramid, you were above the tree line of the jungle of the Yucatan. And then when you looked over on all directions, there's nothing between you and infinity. No boundaries. Freedom in all directions. Peace. Emptiness. Stillness. That's hard to describe in an essay. But just with words, with emotions, you can feel what I'm talking about. Liberated, whichever way you look. No boundaries, no obstacles, nothing, no labels. Totally free, wherever you look. It's pretty cool. So sometimes when you, you have the opportunity to see great distances with nothing inside, don't look at things. Look at what's beyond the things. Don't look at objects. So we we'll say the spaces between the objects, which are far greater. This beautiful stuff which is between, 
and goes on forever and calms and stills and is peaceful. So a place like that where the Buddha would have closed his eyes and gone in and in and in. And things disappearing and vanishing, all these obstacles, all these things which we crave and hold on to, past and future and thoughts. Who's got the best thoughts? Should we have a competition in the BSV? Who has the best thoughts? <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Thoughts are just movements of the mind. They're agitations of the mind. They're not real. They're not true. They may point to something. But what they point to is way, way more profound than the thoughts. So we can argue about thoughts, about words, about labels like enlightenment or Theravada, Mahayana or whatever. But those are not the point of having these words. These words point, direct your attention somewhere. You have to go to where they're pointing and hang out there for a while to understand what they really mean. Which means after a while when we're spiritual beings, we tend to become much more silent. I mentioned I spend too much time talking, but sometimes I'm not talking. It's a weird thing to explain this to you, but sometimes it just, the mouth does it by itself. And I'm listening as interested as you are, what comes out of my mouth next. It's pretty sort of uh, impersonal. A little by little, you, you learn that all these words, it's where they come from, the emotions which you're trying to carry from deep inside, out there, for those people listening. That's what's important. And little by little, it's those things which speak far more loudly and eloquently than any poet could ever say. It's the emotions which are carried with those words. The truths which they are packaging. You have to take off the wrapping paper of words and ideas. When you look inside the little box, that's where you find things like Dhamma. Inspires. This is inspiring generations of people, nations all over the world. And that's, to me, that's really beautiful. Now, of course, we don't have any restrictions for Buddhism all over the internet. That's one of the wonderful things about COVID. It's really made our organization and BSV much more sort of wide open. You don't just have to be here. You'll be in your toilet and listen to a Dharma talk. And personally, you have my full permission to do that. Listening to the Dharma talk is more important than where you're listening to it. Little by little, we, um, little by little, that this is how we grow. I just see that little chat there. Am I going over time again? Oh, quite likely, yes. Because you want a, a, a blessing at the very end. Is there supposed to be some Q&A also? I'll be going on for over an no, I think no, Ajahn. if you could give a blessing there now, that would be good. No um, Q&A, Ajahn. No Q&A. Okay, you can save the Q&A, the questions and answers. Or you can save it for the organizers. I have the fun by telling you things. And all the difficult questions you can ask 
uh, Indira and Adrian or whatever. <laughs> or ask the beautiful monks and nuns at MBM. I'm sure that they will be able to answer all these questions. I know my teaching is long enough now. So anyway, uh, what time is it? Ten minutes past eight. I've talked for now. So you would like a blessing now. Correct? That's correct, Ajahn. Excellent. But they are your phenomenal detail. You're not even in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm following you from the sidelines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now we can give uh, a nice blessing for everyone for their waist sack. And please be inspired. Whether you're in physically in your homes, in a temple, outside in your garden, under lockdown, they can lock down your body. They can't lock down your mind. Your mind is always free. And as I'm doing the blessing, if you're Sri Lankan, you may think of the great Ruanelia, the great stupas. I've got to tell this story because I haven't told this story this year yet. This one which always inspired me. I think this is from the Wisudi Magga. It was a Waisak day in Sri Lanka centuries ago. And there was this one really devout servant girl in the village. And you know, she was a devout Buddhist. And so she could wear white clothes for that day. But to go into the great Chaitya's, the great stupas, I think Ruvanelia, if I pronounce that correctly in Anuradhapura. No, she couldn't get there. She had to be at home. But at night time, when the full moon came out, she could see in the distance the great stupa illuminated by the Waisak full moon. She could hear the chanting of many monks, lay people. And she got so inspired. So much joy came up inside of her, so much bliss, even though she couldn't be there. The whole body rose into the air and she floated over to the great stupa. I can understand how that works. So much joy, so much faith. The body can't resist it. The mind takes it to these beautiful places. You may not be able to levitate like that, but nevertheless, you can close your eyes and just allow the joy and happiness in the heart to take you to some of the greatest places of Buddhist devotion, whether it's in the homeland of Sri Lanka, the great temples in Anuradhapura, or take you to Bodh Gaya, Gumbini, or Kusinara. Beautiful places where you allow your mind just to go to, in your imagination, it's so close to reality. And there you can walk three times around the great stupa as your devotion to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Can be done. So I'll give the little blessing for you now. And if I don't know if Venerable Mudita wants to join in, or Ajahn Nisarana is there somewhere, or Venerable Upeka. Are you there? NBM Venerables are not there, Ajahn. They haven't joined into the private Zoom here. Okay, yeah. So what we'll do anyway, this is, 
I will do it for them. I will send my mind to NBM. Sabbuddha Nubhavena Sabbuddha Nubhavena Sabbuddha Nubhavena Buddha Ratanang Dhamma Ratanang Sangha Ratanang Tinang Ratananang Anubhavena Chaturasiti Sahasadamma Kanda Nubhavena Pitakataya Nubhavena Jina Sawaka Nubhavena Sabete Roga Sabete Bhaya Sabete Antaraya Sabete Upadawa Sabete Dunimita Sabete Awa Mangala Vinasantu Ayuadako Dana Wadako Siri Wadako Yasa Wadako Bala Wadako Wana Wadako Sukha Wadako Otrasabada Dukaroga Baya Vera Sokasa Tutupadawa Aneka Antaraya Piwina Santu Chatejasa Jaya Siddhi Dhamang Labang Soti Bhagayang Sukhang Balang Siri Ayuchawano Chabogang Woody Chayasawasatawasa Chayu Chajiva Siddhi Go on to take.